And if we are capable of that sort of radical adaptation, then we can ask questions about, okay, so the, the environment, both the number and composition of students in the pool is changing. And that's going to provide some stress. I don't want to sugarcoat it. There, there are going to be changes that have to be made that will be painful. But instead of viewing this as, well, let's see what's going to be done to us, how can we attack this problem with the same creativity and passion and energy that we bring to our scholarly endeavors, that we bring to our classrooms? We, we address problems of you know, intellectual problems, classroom teaching problems all the time. Here comes another interesting, maybe painful problem for us to address. If we can all get on the same page and agree that the status quo is not going to serve us well, I'm really optimistic then that administrators, staff, and faculty can join together to say, okay, what do we need to do differently so that we can serve students more effectively, recruit students more effectively, uh, retain students more effectively. The consequence of that, of course, is good for our students, but it's also, as it happens, good for our financial bottom line. Hello, welcome to season two of Ingenious U, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short-term and in the years to come are immense, and yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. Everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education, and we have the opportunity to speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I am joined for this episode by Dr. Nathan Graw, who serves as the Ada M. Harrison Distinguished Teaching Professor of the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Carleton College. Now, most of our listeners are likely familiar with Nathan's 2018 book published by Johns Hopkins University Press, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, which examines how recent demographic shifts are likely to affect demand for higher education. Nathan, I think this research must be among the most cited sources in higher ed in recent times. It has certainly served to inform many of the projections that we've seen as to this notion of an impending demographic cliff that is on the horizon. And you've recently completed a follow-up project and book that I'm eager to talk to you about, The Agile College, which by the way, I have read and is a terrific uh, and very valuable read. So we will include a link to Nathan's bio in the show notes for our listeners. But for now, Nathan, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thanks so much for having me. Now I have long followed your work and it's obviously very timely. Uh, as I said, you are frequently quoted as an important source for speculation about the future of the higher education sector. Can you tell us how you got into this particular area of research? So for three years, I served as our associate dean of the college, uh, working underneath our chief academic officer. And in that role, I was invited to be um, part of a leadership team working on our strategic plan. And as that strategic plan kicked off, our president had our Dean of Admissions share uh, data on the landscape in which Carlton operates. And that was the first time that I saw uh, data from the Western Interstate Commission on Higher Education projecting changes in the number of high school graduates. Uh, at that time, we had only just begun the downward decline in number of births uh, as a nation. But in the Northeast, of course, this has been going on for a while. And so what we saw was a little bit sobering. The Northeast quadrant of the country was contracting, and that obviously is an important market for Carleton and other members of higher education. And so it got me thinking, um, high school graduates obviously are a diverse group, and Carleton only serves a sliver. Is there anything that we could do to differentiate a student who might be uh, not bound to college or might be bound to a two-year college versus a student who might be looking at a more selective institution? And so that sort of kicked me off in this line of work. 
And your first book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, certainly has played a critically important role in getting the attention of, uh, I would say just about everybody in higher ed. It took the world of higher ed by storm. And for those who have not read it, could you provide a brief high level cliff notes summary of the study, uh, specifically thinking about what your key questions were, what the approach is that you took to answering uh, the questions and what you consider to be the most important findings from the research. Sure. So as I mentioned, the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Ed, or WICHI, uh, really is the leader in this area. They've been projecting the number of high school graduates for a long time now. Um, and what I was looking for was just a little bit more nuance in disaggregating this market for higher ed. So I brought data from the Department of Education, longitudinal studies that followed students from high school into colleges to create probability models. What's the probability conditional on demographic subgroups of attendance, not just at college, but in that data set, we know which institutions were attended. So we could create, what's the probability of going to a, a university or college ranked among the top 50 uh, institutions, at least according to US News and World Report. And of course we can think about different, different rankings, but there's gonna be a lot of um, familiar names, no matter which ranking you use. Um, from that, we can apply those probabilities to headcount data that the census collects on an annual level. And that allows us then to come up with disaggregated um, indices of demand for higher ed. So we have one index for the two-year sector, and then the four-year sector was broken into several uh, subsets based on basically selectivity. So the big highlight is you, know, you might hope that there's going to be a change in composition in the population so that even though we're seeing a contraction in the population as a whole, you still have the, the demand for higher ed hold up. Um, and unfortunately, that's just not the case. In some subsets of higher ed, that's true. So when we think about very selective institutions, the rising share of parents with bachelor's degrees will kind of buoy that subset of higher education. But in the society as a whole, we have 70% of high school graduates going on to college the fall after they graduate. With such high matriculation rates, it's pretty hard for us not to see a contraction in the demand for higher ed when we see a contraction like we're seeing right now in the number of young people being born. And so as a result, if we look forward 18 years from the Great Recession when these uh, this turnaround in, in birth levels began, that is the mid-2020s, we can expect in higher ed to see some contraction. And of course, different regions will experience it differently. The West and the South are a little bit stronger demographically and the Midwest and the Northeast a little bit weaker. Flash forward three years, I believe, and you're now out with a sequel, um, a follow-up uh, to the original research. The book, as I mentioned, is called The Agile College. Uh, how did your experience with the first book and the research that you conducted uh, inform this latest work? Um, specifically, what's consistent in your thinking uh, from the first research project to the second? What's new, perhaps revised? Uh, can you and can you talk specifically about any, cha any changes in the higher education demand index? Yeah, so the the second book was really a response to conversations I was happening having following the first, um, and there were a number of responses. So, um, as I mentioned in the second book, I really saw people people read into the book, the first book, what they what they want, um, or maybe not what they want, but their experience. And so I had some people say oh, you are being far, far too uh, optimistic because in the first book, you know that some institutions may navigate their way through these changes and you suggest um, in very broad terms what that might look like. And that's just way too hopeful. And then you know, later the same week, I'll get an email from somebody saying, your work is being used to justify the closure of my institution. <laughs> wow, it's, um, it's a, these are two different responses. Um, so I wanted to, in some sense, capture the narrative a bit on, okay, what, what do I think it adds up to? Not that other people can't make whatever they want out of it. At the same time, I was having lots of conversations with campuses that were incredibly constructive and proactive. Um, now, to be honest, they obviously, it was a selected group. They, they invite me to their campus to talk about this kind of work. Um, I presume that means that they are prone to being more constructive and proactive, but it's really inspiring to talk to higher education leaders across the country and disproportionately in that Northeast quadrant of the country where things are tougher mm -hmm. about different approaches they are taking to recruitment, to retention, to serving students, to improving student success, uh, to collaborating with peers, all in an effort to guide their institutions to a new future that, that might be a little bit leaner um, but is nevertheless preparing their institutions to serve their communities for another 100 or 200 years, uh, depending on the cases. And so um, 
you know, as I was having these conversations, I thought, wow, that if there are others who are sitting on their campuses thinking, we too would like to engage proactively, but it's uh, hard to see where on our campus we could start a conversation, perhaps just by providing stories, a uh, wide range of stories from different contexts and different institutions, maybe that can jumpstart conversations. Not that anything anyone else is doing can be just yanked off the shelf and plugged in. That's obviously not going to work, but rather that it might spark a conversation. Um, at the same time, I did update um, the projections I added some additional nuance. I had questions from people about, well, but what about the subset of institutions that are private versus public? Do the young people with demographic markers suggesting they might attend a private school, is that population growing in different ways? The answer turned out to be no. We're kind of all in the same boat together. Um, what about transfer students versus students who are more persistent in their attachment to higher ed? Um, there was a little bit mixed, it seems, for the subset of young people who have markers of attending two-year institutions uh, the, the subset of that group that are transfer students is maybe a bit more robust, a bit healthier. Um, by contrast, the subset of two-year attenders who are persistent is a little bit weaker. So when you look at the overall projections as a two-year institution, maybe you have to actually read in a little bit of extra weakness. Obviously, it's a little bit harder to serve more marginally attached students. It, it's lovely when students come to our campuses and say, I will just keep paying my registration dollars term after term. Um, with the four-year institutions, there wasn't nearly as much uh, differentiation across those groups. So it allowed me to look at some different differentiations. I think the bottom line is there have been a number of things that have changed. Matriculation rates among Hispanics are higher than in the first uh, study. Um, so that's a good thing. On the other hand, um, you still have the decline in the number of young people being born to Hispanic families. So it doesn't really alter the projections substantially. Um, Maybe the uh, projection for 2029 wasn't quite as severe. That was the last year of projection in the first book uh, due to some uh, sampling issues. But we end up getting kind of down to the same point. It just takes us a couple extra years to get there. And of course, now we've seen even more declines in births uh, since even the, the second book was written. So we can anticipate um, that really through the, throughout the 2030s, we're going to be in leaner times in higher education in terms of a shrinking prospective student pool. Well, that's a great segue to my next question, which is given that you were writing the Agile College pre-pandemic, you started at pre-pandemic, right? That's right. Um, and you note that the projections are based on institutions and people acting as they have historically. Uh, what are your thoughts about how the pandemic might change long-term enrollment behavior and any important markers that you're seeing that higher ed leaders need to be aware of? So if we look at the National Clearinghouse data on enrollments this past year, one disturbing trend we saw was that um, obviously enrollments were down, but they were disproportionately down among first-generation low-income students. That is the more marginally attached mm -hmm. subsets of students. Insofar as one way we can get through this mess is by expanding access, that's not great news. Um, and then the early Common App data suggested similarly that applications were down from this group. Now the later Common App data seemed to say that no, they got back to the same levels they had been a year before. Um, and I'm hopeful about that. I, I'm hopeful that what that means is that the pandemic created a blip, um, that we, we saw a temporary step away from higher ed in these marginal groups and that they're coming back. Uh, but we have to work for it. I think back to the Great Recession, and I think there's a really great uh, morality tale there where we saw similarly uh, Hispanic and African-American matriculation rates decline during the Great Recession. These were uh, communities that were disproportionately hit by the financial crisis, and so perhaps that's not surprising. But what we may have in 2009 or 10 wanted to look at as a blip didn't end up being a blip for the African-American community. With the Hispanic community, we'd seen increasing matriculation rates and the rate of increase slowed down a bit, but they continued on past the Great Recession at, at attending in higher and higher rates. But with the African-American community, we actually saw a reversal. And now at this point, I think we have enough data to say that's a worrisome trend that what started as a, a near-term disturbance perhaps turned into a long-term trend. And I think that just reminds us on the access agenda, we have to win that war year after year. You can't say, but last year, well, that's great. Last year was great perhaps, um, but unless we win again this year and win again next year and win again the year after that, um, it'll be a long time before we get to the point where we say, okay, with some of these uh, subpopulations, we have done a, an effective job. We've cemented that relationship where those gains can't be lost. And so as we think about the, the pandemic, um, 
I am worried about what happens with the relationship with low-income first-generation students. I'm crossing my fingers that the most recent data suggests that we will see uh, that it was just a blip, but, but there's more work to be done. In, as we go forward, I think the pandemic has the potential to rearrange all sorts of relationships. Um, and so I am really curious to see how this all plays out. I think about my own kids having middle school and high school experiences with distance learning. Um, now I'm biased here. I, I teach at Carleton. It's a residential, high touch environment. I hope and expect there will be a, a subset of students who experience distance learning and say, this reminds me of how important that personal relationship with my teachers is. And we'll drive them to places like Carleton. Not that Carleton can just sit here and receive them, but that it gives us an opening to a conversation. But on the other hand, as much as I am biased and I do see the, the value of the kind of education that my institution provides, I think there's another subset of high schoolers who may have had a very different experience with distance learning. Um, in particular, maybe they were thinking, I'm not going to college, I'm going right into the labor force and higher education doesn't fit my plans. And with distance learning, maybe they had an experience that opened their eyes to a different possibility that, oh, I can enter the labor force and yet there's still a way for me to begin my, my studies through online education. I, I think there are just so many different experiences when I think about people's experiences of the pandemic more broadly about whether you wear, wear masks and when and how, and we've had so many disparate responses. I think there's a good likelihood that young people are gonna have a similarly disparate response to the pandemic and how that, that brings them through. And then I think it does come down to what institutions tell compelling stories because whatever students do in rethinking what they're looking for, um, presumably they're looking for the most compelling version of that. And so um, I don't think any of us can just sit back and say, well, let's hope the pandemic pushes students our way. I think we have to think hard about what is it that we're offering and how do we provide the best version of that so that whichever institutions benefit from a reordering of student preferences, we're in the group that's that's meeting students' needs. That's a that's a really really good point, and it's another good segue um, to the major focus of your new book, which discusses things that you can actually do as a campus. Um, so tactics, strategies that institutions can use to adapt to the future. I am curious why you think it is important to to include this focus and why the emphasis on agility in particular? Yeah, when I think about agility, I'm, I'm just thinking about the capacity to re-envision ourselves. And I think higher ed has an unfair reputation of being sclerotic, that we don't change with the times. Um, it's certainly true. I don't have quarterly performance reviews with my boss um, as some of my private sector uh, friends do. But on the other hand, I think in the last year, we clearly have made uh, we, we provided the evidence, maybe most importantly to ourselves, that we are capable of massive change in a very short amount of time. So many institutions that identified themselves as being residential campuses, that the residential learning environment was the thing that we do, within two weeks, we're entirely distance and online. Um, and while not every institution went through that transformation, I think most institutions substantially altered things that touch on even their identity. And I think that's important to remember that we are capable of adapting pretty radically. And if we are capable of that sort of radical adaptation, then we can ask questions about, okay, so the, the environment, both the number and composition of students in the pool is changing. And that's gonna provide some stress. I don't wanna sugarcoat it. There, there are going to be changes that have to be made that will be painful. But instead of viewing this as, well, let's see what's going to be done to us, how can we attack this problem with the same creativity and passion and energy that we bring to our scholarly endeavors, that we bring to our classrooms? We, we address problems of you know, intellectual problems, classroom teaching problems all the time. Here comes another interesting, maybe painful problem for us to address. If we can all get on the same page and agree that the status quo is not going to serve us well, I'm really optimistic then that administrators, staff, and faculty can join together to say, okay, what do we need to do differently so that we can serve students more effectively, recruit students more effectively, uh, retain students more effectively. The consequence of that, of course, is good for our students, but it's also, as it happens, good for our financial bottom line. And it is a very hopeful message. Um, I, I think it's a good counter message to so much of what has come out in the last, the last several months in terms of what's been written uh, that would be more negative uh, in terms of uh, the future. 
I, I don't want to sugarcoat it again. I mean, I, I describe yeah. a conversation I had with Barbara Brittenham, who uh, is now yeah. retired as president of uh, the New England accreditation body, right. NETCH. And, yeah. and, and I shared with her this vision that I picked off up from a blog post uh, by Ed Bennett about you know, an, an anti-fragile system. Can we respond to stress and become stronger versions of ourselves? And obviously, Neshi has been located at ground zero for all of these mm -hmm. challenges. They are already in the future that many of us look mm -hmm. to with a little bit of trepidation. And so not surprisingly, her response was, well, sure. I mean, stress can make you stronger, but if it gets to be too much, like a car accident, it will break you. Um, and, I, and I thought that was a a worthwhile counterpoint, right? I mean, I don't want to be uh, a Pollyanna that just says, oh, there's no problem here. Um, there may be institutions that won't be able to find their way through. Let's work together to minimize that. Uh, there may be campuses that don't find themselves capable of being agile enough to adapt, but let's try to minimize that. And I guess more than anything, I was thinking about that stress and thinking about you know my physics friends who joke that it's not speed that kills, it's the deceleration, right? The change yeah. in speed. Mm -hmm stress is, is a combination of how much pressure over how much time. And we do get to control that a bit. If we start adapting right now, for instance, to improve retention rates, we don't have to recruit as many students going forward. We can, we can absorb the declining pool size by getting more registrations out of more successful students. But that only works if we start now. Let's talk today about how do we meet students' needs in new and more effective ways so that we can increase retention starting now and spread this stress out over a longer period. If we wait and we get to that point where um, you know, the financial situation is truly dire, well, then, then we have so little time and we don't maybe have the resources to implement change necessary. And then the stress does become the car accident. And then we're back to you know, Barbara's counter example of stress that just breaks. And, yeah. So it's, you know, I don't want to be Pollyanna, but I, I do want to encourage us to talk sooner rather than later and more agilely rather than um, more constrained about opening things up. How can we spread this stress out over multiple aspects of the institution over a longer time period so that we can come out the other end successful? Yeah, no, and I, I think the use of the word agile is a very appropriate word in that regard because I don't think it's an overly Pollyannish uh, word for what you're talking about. I, when you go on in your book, you know you are uh, you're very wise to uh, to describe a wide range of options that colleges and universities can consider. And um, I had the opportunity to interview not too long ago uh, Dr. Mary Churchill, who co-led the merger of Wheelock College into Boston University, and, and has just published a book. Uh, describing that that story, and you know, one of the things she says is that um, so many people still think about a merger in terms of it being a failure, and she said it doesn't have to be a failure. It can be the very thing you need to do to reinvent the institution, to still honor the mission, but to give it a new form, if you will. And you know, I I think about agility in that in that regard. Um, there's any number of things that you can consider for your institution's future. And um, I think it's a, it's a matter of imagining and being willing to think, think broadly um, based on, on where your institution is at a particular point. So it's a good, I think it's a good choice of the word. And I think the title of the book is very appropriate in that regard. Well, she um, makes a great point about how we define success and failure. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've been in this upswing in higher ed for decades now of expanding enrollments. And in that context, okay, maybe mergers were failures at some point in the past, and maybe contraction was failure at some point in the past. But we have to be careful to take those lessons learned from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s and saying, of course, that's the way it always is. And we need to be open to, as she's pointing out, alternative notions of what success looks like. Um, otherwise, we just, we shut down conversations that may lead to productive outcomes. There has never been a better time to study higher education. And the Bay Path University Master's Degree Program in Higher Education Administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today.
Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. This Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching and program administration. There's even a joint entry track with a doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or you're looking to switch professions to work at a college or university, the Masters in Higher Education Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with personal mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. Take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. Now, in Chapter 5, where you, you introduced the focus of um, adaptive uh, possibilities, you point out the importance of distinguishing between tactics and strategies. Can you talk about why you thought it was important to, to differentiate between those two things? Yeah, well, that observation came from an early conversation with John McGee, the author of Breakpoint, um, where he really drove that, that point home, and I thought it was really spot on. Often, as he pointed out, we come to these conversations at tough points. We miss a class in a substantial way. And now everybody's a little bit panicked, to be honest. And in that moment, we can end up just kind of grasping at straws. We'll do this differently. We'll do that differently without ever stepping back and seeing the bigger picture. What's our mission? Do we need to make a more fundamental change to what we're bringing to market? And if, if we don't have that bigger conversation in advance. And you know, ideally we would all have it always in mind. What is our mission that would be well hammered out? But if you don't start from there, you end up with things really, really misaligned. And they might work for you for a short while, but they're not likely to breed even medium-term success as what you're doing over in recruitment doesn't align well with what we're doing in the student success department and what we're doing in the classroom. And pretty soon the new students that you're recruiting aren't being served particularly well and they figure that out. And now you've got a retention issue. And so he was arguing that, yes, all, all the things, you know, in some sense, a lot of the vignettes that I shared uh, from other people in the later half of the book um, might be viewed as just a tactic here or there. Well, here, here's a practice. And I thought John's caution was wise to say, okay, many of these things could be good in many circumstances, but few of them will be good in every circumstance. And you really do have to ask, how does this fit into our bigger whole? And if you're not asking that question, probably you're just wasting a lot of money and resources in the transition to the new tactic. And it probably won't serve you well. And that's maybe the best case scenario. It might actually derail the institution by you know, pushing it in directions it is not meant to go. Um, and I thought that was a good reminder that yeah, I, I think as boards especially approach this, um, there can be a tendency to say, well, that institution did X and it worked well for them. Okay, that, that's fine. And maybe X could be adapted in certain ways to our context, um, but there has to be a level of trust with faculty and administrators and staff on the ground who say, here's why X doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. um, it works well for them. We're not questioning whether it worked well for them, but here's why it wouldn't work here. And of course, trustees have to be, if they're good trustees, engaged enough to ask hard questions and not take flippant, no, you know, we haven't done it that way before in the past answers, but they still have to be open to recognizing that people on the ground might be sharing some important insights about a context that says this wouldn't fit, this tactic wouldn't fit our bigger uh, strategic uh, vision. And, you know, it, it's a give and take. Trustees are also involved in setting the strategic vision for the institution. So I don't want to suggest that, um, you know, the people on campus always know best, but rather that it has to be part of a, a bigger conversation. Well, it also suggests the importance of being thoughtful about the pathway you're pursuing. And I think what is sometimes difficult in these times where there's so much pressure 
um, and financial stress is that you don't always feel like you have the luxury mm. of that time. And I think new presidents in particular often will feel compelled to just do something um, to demonstrate that they're leading and that they're trying to solve whatever the problem is that they think is in front of them and, sure. and then wind up backing into these, um, these actions that may not always be the right, the right thing to do in the long run. So um, it's a, it's, I was really glad that you included that. I think it's a very important point. Now you were, you were um, very careful in your introduction to point out the difficulty of identifying a one size fits all strategy when you're talking about the higher ed, sac higher ed sector that's incredibly diverse. And so your examples are drawn from institutions of all types and sizes. And I'm wondering if you could share a few of the examples that you found particularly compelling? Sure. Um, some of them have to do with individual institutions working on their own. So for instance, when uh, thinking about the challenge of uh, retention, um, a lot of institutions have looked a lot of places. Rutgers is currently working on student work as a locus for, the, for retention work. And I think it's really interesting because obviously student work is an important part of many students' experiences. Um, they're in particular targeting Pell eligible people who might, because of financial aid gapping, find themselves needing work and finding that job if they're a commuter student in a local retail store that they worked at in high school. And there's nothing wrong with that as an employment possibility, but it doesn't connect you to the institution. And so they're trying to train up uh, student work supervisors in several departments that are specifically um, identified for this purpose so that there will be a closer mentoring relationship through the student work process. So their weekly check-ins, uh, the individuals are trained on what resources are available. And the hope is that a student who you know, flubs a midterm and has a downcast face will run into their student work supervisor and find a resource that connects them into academic support, for instance. Um, I think it's a really smart way of trying to take areas that maybe have been neglected. Um, it's just part of the financial aid package and turn it into a meaningful experience. Mm -hmm. uh, another example, St. Cloud State, uh, a state institution, a public institution in my home state, uh, has been working on trying to identify very early on, week three, that students are on campus via a small assessment, a 10 item questionnaire, a multiple choice questionnaire. The students who are high performing, GPA of 3.0 or better in that first term, who nevertheless, because of low sense of social belonging, are at attrition risk even in spring term. And by identifying those students early in fall term and getting that information to faculty and staff, they're hoping to invite faculty and staff to engage with those students and draw them into the community so that through better social belonging and connection, those students uh, persist. Um, we see recruitment efforts that I think are kind of interesting as institutions try to redefine who are we um, and who are our students? Uh, so an example uh, comes from um, see Morningside uh, in Iowa, where they are admitting students who they in the past would have said no to, but now are giving a provisional yes. So the provisional part is in the fall semester, the students are not permitted to be part of what they call talent organizations. So you can't be on the football team. Um, they're, they're trying to decrease any incentive at the institution to use this as an end around to recruit students um, because they might serve in a, in a student uh, talent organization. They just want to get these students off to a really solid start in the fall term with a scripted set of courses. And if the students do well enough in that fall semester, uh, they can get back on track and have a non-provisional admission to the college starting in the spring term. Um, another example of sort of reaching out to student groups that maybe weren't part of your class, Drake University, also in Iowa. Um, I don't think this is in the books, I think I ran into this more recently, has added a, a two-year degree to their four-year program. So they've always defined themselves as a four-year institution. And I think this is a great example of being flexible. Who are we? And, and we can say, you know, this is who we are and the students have to, they have to come find us. They have to meet us. Or in Drake's case, they're saying there's a significant group of students in the Des Moines area that they serve who they have not been able to serve because Drake has defined itself in a way that excludes the relationship. By adding it to your program, they're opening up paths and saying, we will meet you, we'll reach to where you're at and bring you into the Drake community. And of course, they're hoping that those um, two-year program enrollees become four-year program uh, graduates. Um, so I, I think we see these 
individual institutions operating. And then we also see really interesting collaborations. So the tribal colleges and universities um, often struggle because they have such small campuses. So you have a small end problem, even if you surveyed your entire campus. But collectively, they have enough students with institutions of common mission that they can learn more things about retention. Uh, they can learn by seeing what's true of the group, but they can also see themselves better in relief as they compare themselves. Uh, so this is one of the first times I think that they've done collectively surveys with all of their students at the same time, the same surveys, so that they can benefit by collaborating on data. Uh, we see collaborations between two-year and four-year institutions, again, with kind of provisional admission, where we say um, University of Southern Maine has done this. We have yes as an answer, no as an answer, and not yet. And the not yet then comes with a, a, a personalized package of coursework at a two-year institution that if you complete these things successfully, you will be prepared then to join the four-year institution. But that requires um, some seamlessness. And some of these two-year, four-year partnerships actually have the students living on the four-year campus. They have IDs from the four-year campus. So again, trying to address that social belonging to make the transition as seamless as possible so that the student can get the work done that they need to at the two-year institution and they seamlessly continue on at the four-year institution. So I see things that individual institutions are doing and I see things in that collaborative sphere where institutions are trying to work hard to provide better experiences for their students. Boy, those are all such good, good strategies. You know, I was struck by how many examples have to do with retention and uh, wondering if that's an area that uh, you see as needing to have greater focus for, uh, for maybe all schools um, going forward. I think that's right just because of arithmetic. We have so many students already going on to college and yet the pool percentage-wise, and yet the pool is shrinking. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that we can't take the edge off of the demographic decline by expanding access, and we should. But I think we need to be realistic that it, you know, based on past experience, it's not likely we will entirely offset the decline in number of births by increasing access. Mm -hmm. And if that's not going to happen, then if we're going to solve the problem and maintain enrollments, it's going to have to be that each student enrolls for more terms. And it really is a bit of a scandal, the, the retention issues that we have at American higher ed. So it seems like this is a case where we can do well by doing good. Um, there are practices that have been identified in the literature to improve retention, not all of which have been fully implemented on campuses. Um, many campuses could largely offset the expected decline in the number of students in their pool if they were to, say, reduce attrition by 25%. And of course, you know, the consequence of that would be wonderful for their students in terms of student success. So it, it benefits students because they get the degree that they want. It benefits society. Right now we have a debt crisis in large part driven by the some college but no degree. I have enough debt to get in trouble but not the earning power to repay it. And, you know, as a side benefit, you get some more tuition dollars out of the same number of students. And so if the cheapest student to recruit is already on your campus, maybe we need to do a better job of re-recruiting that student every term. It's good for them and it's good for us. Yeah, that's that's right. That's, and I, I do think that's a, a powerful, powerful notion to keep in mind. Now, you point out that for some institutions, the best path forward will include rethinking size or scope uh, and perhaps even the most existential question about whether to remain open, which takes us back to our previous conversation about um, Wheelock uh, and the merger there. Uh, can you say more about, about this and uh, your thinking about, uh, well, well, what did you learn from your conversations with folks in regard to this, this particular issue? Yeah, so you identify kind of the two ways we could be talking about. We could be talking about just contraction, or we could be talking about something like merger. In the case of contraction, um, I had a great conversation with Jack Newhauser, the former president mm -hmm. at St. Michael's in Vermont. You know, Vermont is kind of ground zero for demographic change. The number of high school graduates uh, is far, far off its peak. And as a result, maybe it's not surprising that we have four fewer private colleges than we had just a short time ago there. And so St. Michael's is facing an incredibly competitive, difficult landscape and concluded a few years ago now that they would be better off having a smaller size. And by deciding to set themselves on that path early before it became a real crisis, they could make the transition largely through attrition. And so they could just let retirements take their course. We do non-replacement of staff and faculty lines and we can have a smaller institution. And by having a smaller uh, number of staff and faculty, they don't need as many students to generate the tuition revenue. And that allows them to actually be a bit more selective on the admission side at the same time. 
And at least at the time of the writing of the book, it seemed like that's exactly what they'd managed to accomplish. They had a smaller uh, student uh, pool, but they did have higher board scores, for instance, uh, in both the 25th and the 75th percentile. So it seemed like they were doing a, um, a good job of implementing what they were after. Um, now, Dr. Neuheiser noted this was, this was not painless. It was a difficult conversation on campus. Uh, alums um, sort of viewed contraction. Well, that, that means uh, a weakness. You're, you're undermining the value of our degree. You should just go into Boston and recruit harder. And he said, I'm not opposed to recruiting well and better in Boston. It's just the math doesn't add up here. And so while we should recruit better and harder in Boston and will, uh, he still felt very, you know, even looking back, that it was the right play to go toward a smaller institution. And we've started to see institutions like Wellesley announce that they intend to get smaller as well, trying to buck this trend of the notion that slightly smaller is necessarily worse or weak. Um, now, the merger situation is, you know, another case where we have this, this association, merger is weakness. I was talking to um, uh, Joey King, a president of Lyon College, who's done some consulting in, in higher ed. And he noted how difficult it is to have this conversation because any president who comes to her board and says, I'm thinking of contracting or merging, um, may well be instead initiating a conversation where the board is thinking about who is our next president because this right. is not the conversation we want. And so Joey was arguing, we need to somehow regularize these hard conversations so that merely bringing them up is not the end of the conversation and maybe the end of someone's career, but instead is like, look, this is due diligence. What is our mission? What's the best way to serve it? Does it continue to be as an independent institution? Or might it be that through merger, we might have an option to fulfill our mission more effectively. And if that's just a regular conversation, then when it comes up, it's nobody's fault that it's coming up. Nobody immediately thinks, oh my gosh, something terrible must be going on because we're considering whether there are advantages to merger. It's just the regular course of things. And I think that would be lovely if we could get there. Too often, it seems like the mergers that we witness take place after one institution is, is so weakened that they don't really have any leverage. It, it's, not, it's more of an acquisition. We aren't really leveraging uh, the benefits or the strengths of both campuses. And it seems like we're missing out on some opportunities where maybe merger would be the best way forward. You know, and, and again, this is not a pleasant conversation. I understand if my alma mater were considering merging, um, yeah, I, I met my wife there. Um, I had some great memories there. Uh, those are not insignificant things. These are hard conversations, but it seems unfortunate that we can't have them. Um, it seems even if we have the conversation and decide merger is not for us, we would be better off to be able to have these conversations openly and then decide what really is the best way forward for us, for our students. Yes, yeah, no, indeed. So um, now in, in that same vein, uh, most presidents that I talk to, including those at the lower end, the mid-levels of selectivity uh, seem to be committed to growing their way through the challenges of demographic growth. I mean, most of them tell me they plan to grow, um, unlike the uh, former president of, of St. Michael's. So in your opinion, is this wishful thinking for most of them, or are there some approaches or strategies that hold promise, particularly for these lesser known institutions? Those are the ones I worry about. Um, right. frankly. Yeah, I think, I think we have to just be honest that the arithmetic is such that it, it can't add up that we all grow through this and access remains where it is. And it's unlikely that access will grow sufficiently to allow us to all grow through it. So whatever your argument is that we'll grow our way through better also have, and here's why, while you're trying to grow your way through and out recruit me and I'm trying to do the reverse, I'm going to succeed and you're going to fail. What, what makes us different? And if at the end of the day, it's difficult to identify what differentiates us from our competitors. And if we've more or less got a commoditized product, those arguments are harder to sell. Um, I mean, certainly you can imagine growth. You say, well, we're going to discount harder. Net fee income per student goes down, but the number of students goes up and we find our way through. But then I know that you also want those same students. And so something's got to give here. So I think we do have to be realistic about, you know, there are going to be some who can succeed and maybe they have a particular plan uh, in a particular market that makes that work. But for all of us to succeed that way, it seems very unlikely to me. Um, you know, it feels like at least we should have another plan on the table. We will try to grow, but we're also gonna work this retention problem so that if we don't grow, we still you know, are doing well. And by the way, for us to improve retention and student success, we might have to change the academic program 
so that we're meeting students' needs in it, right? I mean, we, we might have to change who we are. And, and sometimes I see the growth, we're gonna grow our way through is a convenient way of saying, we don't, we're fundamentally gonna remain the same and everything's yeah. gonna be okay. And I, I get why that's comfortable as a faculty member. I don't like it when the administration tells me I need to change either. Um, and, and I even appreciate some change immunity. That is to say, when people say, here's a new idea, sometimes faculty say, actually, that's an old idea and there's a reason we don't do it. Um, faddishness should be fine. There, there's a reason we have tenure and, and all of these things are true. And yet, and yet we have to be open to conversations that might require us to change who we are. And if we're not willing to have that, I think we're running some risks in the current environment. So are you suggesting that that presidents in particular need to have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and have perhaps a variety of strategies that they are pursuing at the same time? Or I guess I would be more comfortable in their situation if I did have, right? I, if we're just diversifying risk here, right? Um, obviously you can't do everything. We only have so much uh, bandwidth on the campus for change. And, and so, you know, messaging and so on limits what we can do, but um, it doesn't seem impossible to say on one hand at the admissions office, we're pursuing growth. And on the other hand, with the faculty and staff, we're working on retention. It, those don't seem to be at odds to me. And so I, I would prefer if I were them to have backup plans and not have all of my eggs in one basket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and given, you know, given what you've written and uh, the uncertainty that still is there in terms of the future, um, I think for most most institutions, it's wise to not be locked in uh, too tightly to one to one pathway. Um, so speaking about change, I am wondering about whether your research has changed you at all uh, in your approach as an educator or maybe even your colleagues at Carleton. Yeah, it has. I think um, you know some of these some of these research efforts help me recall other things from my past that this sort of align. I, I remember Scott Bierman is a former colleague of mine, now president at Beloit College. And when his daughter was looking at colleges, he reported back with some angst that he had a common conversation at every campus he went to. Uh, from Carleton, where his daughter toured, to the University of Minnesota. And the, the conversation went like this. Somebody would ask, what's the relationship with faculty like on, on campus? And the answer from the tour guide was always, oh, it's fabulous. And the example to justify that was always, in fact, just last month, I went to a professor's house for pizza. And that was the answer given at Carleton as well. And there's nothing wrong with having pizza with faculty. It's quite enjoyable. But Scott's concern was that Carlton charges an awful lot. That's an expensive slice of pizza if that is <laughs> what it means for us to have meaningful relationships between faculty mm -hmm. and students. And so, you know, he was really thinking about how do we really lean into fulfilling this mission? Not that Carlton doesn't do better than that, but how do we make it so vibrant that the tour guide won't say that, but instead will pull up, yeah, I'm an RA on a faculty member's research or something like that. And in thinking about this sort of work, I. I do remain optimistic. I'm, I'm optimistic for Carleton, I'm optimistic for higher ed, but I'm only optimistic insofar as we actually fulfill our missions, which means we have a lot of hard work to do. For me personally, this means, you know, Carleton is, is adapting just like everybody else is. We have some advantages, we have some disadvantages. So we're a highly selective school that works in our favor. We're far in the North, that doesn't actually help us a lot when we see growth in, in the Southwest and we're trying to expand the number of uh, Hispanic students, um, how do we do that? It, it's going to require us to adapt. It's going to require me to think about new student groups showing up in my classroom. Yes, in part, what are their needs? We need to meet those needs, but also what are their assets? What are they bringing to my classroom? How can I adapt how I'm teaching so that those assets shine through so that we all benefit uh, from what new student groups have to offer? And thinking about these demographic changes and, and the fact that none of us really have the ability to look to the future and say, oh, everything is for sure secure. We just don't have that luxury. Um, what does that mean I need to do in each and every classroom, in my office hours, so that I'm participating in this re-recruitment of our students at every term? And, and so I'm improving student success with the students who I touch. Um, so it's really prompted me to, to double down, I guess, on commitment to the mission. What is it that I need to do differently so that I more fulfill the mission that Carleton has laid out for our students? Mm. Boy, that's... That's a terrific, terrific response. Carlton's lucky to have you in the classroom. So we have a signature question that we ask of every guest who comes on the Ingenious You podcast. And that question's especially timely right now as we look to the end of the pandemic. And I wanna tailor the question 
to focus on your most important research takeaways. So here's the question. As you look to the future, considering your research, what do you think are the most essential ingredients for effective college and university leadership in the days ahead? And uh, perhaps put another way, um, what do you most hope that readers, particularly university leaders who read your book will take away from uh, what you've written and your research? I hope it inspires an attitude of adaptability, a recognition that we face challenges. We face challenges right now in the context of COVID, even in the wrap up. Um, and we face demographic challenges. We face uh, societal challenges as we've had some tough conversations play out in America that, that call higher ed to think in new ways. Um, I hope it inspires a, a response that says we, we can adapt. We can be different. We can be better versions of ourselves. and. Once we have that recognition, then hopefully it frees us up to to do the work that requires to get there. Um, you know, it's it's difficult to look at where we are right now and not see you know just incredible change. The pace of change is high. The stakes around change seem uh, very high right now, um, and that that can be is daunting in some way. But I think it is comforting to know that we don't have to be the same versions of ourselves that we were yesterday. That that growth is possible. Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, which is a production of CHELUP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education monthly webinar series. In our next episode, I sit down with higher ed's foremost expert on the changing role and profile of college and university faculty, Dr. Adriana Kazar. Dr. Kazar is Dean's Professor of Leadership, Wilbur Kiefer Professor of Higher Education, and Director of the Polias Center for Higher Education at the University of Southern California. She is a prolific author and researcher, is regularly quoted in the media, and is also a national expert on organizational change, governance, and leadership in higher education. Join us to hear her compelling insights about where higher education is headed and what new models we need to be thinking about for this next era. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.